Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. and welcome to the History of England, episode 254, Europe 10, Chaos and Danger. Last week, we killed off Charles V. Yes, well done us. But we did so before we talked about the third of his priorities. The first, you may or may not remember, was to squish the Valois. The second, you may or may not remember, was to squish the Prots. The third was the fight for survival against the beast from the east, the Ottoman Empire. Now, Because we know what happens in the end, it's easy to downplay the threat and sense of danger that the Ottomans presented to Europe. But also, they presented something of an opportunity, it has to be said. Different religion they might be, but that didn't mean they were not now part of the European political and diplomatic system. So, I'd like to try and put that right and present a brief review of their history, which might help with our understanding of the threat, danger and opportunity they presented. Also, they're super interesting, so I needed an excuse. Last time we talked about the Ottomans, we had seen them beginning to dominate the eastern Mediterranean and thereby the trade routes to the east. Selim the Grim had taken Egypt in 1517, and note that by Egypt, in this sense, what we mean is the Mamluk Empire, which therefore included most of the Levant. It prompted a seriously vexed Pope Leo X to work his worry beads and mutter... Now that the most atrocious Turk has captured Egypt and Alexandria and the whole Eastern Empire, he will cover not just Sicily and Italy, but the whole world. So, someone at least was already worrying that the Ottoman threat was an existential threat. A little rude, though, I think you'll agree. Anyway, Selim the Grim was a conqueror who expanded the Ottoman Empire by over 70%. By the way, I quite fancy the Grim as an epithet, should any of you be tempted right up there with blood axe. Selim's conquests had included North Africa and parts of the Arabian Peninsula, including the holy cities of Medina and Mecca, and he'd moved the Caliphate of Cairo to Istanbul, a symbol of Ottoman leadership of Sunni Muslims. Selim died at the age of 50 after just nine years of reign, and in 1520, the Venetian envoy recorded the arrival of his successor, the 26-year-old Suleiman. The sultan is tall and slender, but tough, with a thin and bony face. Facial hair is evident, but only barely. The sultan appears friendly and in good humour. Rumour has it that Suleiman is aptly named, enjoys reading, is knowledgeable and shows good judgement. Suleiman apparently means man of peace, so yeah, he wasn't really aptly named, as it turns out. In fact, he was to be a chip off the old block though maybe with less of the grim business. He inherited a structured military 
and bureaucratic system. The Sultan enjoyed absolute power in the appointment of his ministers, including the most important, his head vizier. The Sultan and his advisers formed the Divan, or the chief law court of the land. The Sultan's power was guaranteed by the famous Janissaries, who essentially were a standing army of about 10,000 in strength. Until the system was changed in 1648, they were all recruited from Christian slaves from Anatolia and the Balkans, and they formed a genuine and utterly loyal military elite. The remaining bulk of the army was generated through the Timurot system. The way this worked was this. As the empire expanded, Timurots were appointed to parcels of land, fiefs, essentially, called Timars. Each of the lucky Timurots answered to a military governor of the region, the Sanjek Bey. The Sanjek Bey was then responsible to the provincial governor. It was a clean and effective structure, particularly while the empire was growing. Now, when the call to war went out from the Sultan, these Timurots came to the Sultan's war as magnificent horsemen, the Sipahis, who were scarcely less professional than were the Janissaries. The Sultan's army then was probably 80,000 strong. This, you might notice, is a very big number when compared to the rest of Europe. And Suleiman's naval strength was barely less impressive. Always good to have a strong naval. Sorry. Suleiman enjoyed power unimaginable to Western monarchs. The society he led was very different. There was little of the impact of kinship which drove the Western aristocracies. One Western observer noted that reward appeared to be based entirely on merit rather than on birth, and that this made the system and bureaucracy extremely efficient. There is no struggle for precedence, every man having his place assigned to him in the virtue of the function which he performs. Thus, among the Turks, dignities, offices and administrative posts are the rewards of ability and merit. Those who are dishonest, lazy and slothful never attain to distinction, but remain in obscurity and contempt. The Timurates, for example, that we've just been speaking about, were not hereditary. So when they died, their Timars, their parcels of land, were redistributed by the Sultan. It made for a society which was notably stable, though also therefore with little change. Famously also, the Ottomans employed a process that allowed for much more religious toleration than was possible in Europe, the so-called millet system. So, Islam was the established religion, and only those who practised it were full citizens. So, you know, it's not that there wasn't any discrimination. But there was toleration, and pretty reasonable it was. If non-Muslims paid a special tax, then these other religions could be treated as protected subjects. They could form their own communities, with their own laws, courts and officials. Now, we shouldn't go overboard. Christians and Jews were not full citizens, they could not proselytise, they could not marry outside their millet, and they were taxed for the privilege. But compared to most of Europe, religious dissidents enjoyed an impressive level of legal protection and religious freedom. So when Suleiman inherited this machine, he was eager to use it, as you would be as a young man, 26, you know. And so he did. You must put out of your mind any idea that this is a sort of force of nature blowing in unknowingly from the east. Suleiman knew full well of the politics of Europe. He was well informed. And his strategy was to use the divisions of Europe to his own advantage, to launch his attacks when the Christian powers could least well resist. He faced few obstacles in organising and leading attacks. As we've seen, his level of authority within his realm was very impressive. He saw it as his mission 
and the society he led saw it collectively as their mission to convert the infidel. And so the only real restraint he had was the Sarafid Persian Empire to his south and east. And so it was not long, in fact, nothing more than about a year, in 1521, before Suleiman packed his bag for a spot of light conquering with his first trip westwards into Europe. Wasn't a bad effort at all at conquering for a beginner. He advanced north through the Balkans and captured the key fortress of Belgrade. Thousands of Christians were forced to move to Istanbul and Suleiman had a base of operations on the Danube from which to launch an invasion of Hungary to the north should the inspiration to do so ever move him. Next on the shopping list, though, was the island of Rhodes, held by the Order of St John, and after seven months' siege, the monumental fortress was forced to surrender. Under the terms of the surrender, though, the order was allowed to leave and it lived on and would take up home in an almost as important strategic location on the island of Malta. There will be another siege there in due course and a whopper. Watch this space. For the next three years, Suleiman was forced to stay his hand to suppress a revolt in Egypt. But in 1526, his great host swept northwards again for the long-expected invasion of Hungary. The result was an exercise in hyperbole. The devastating, cataclysmic, catastrophic, really rather disappointing Christian defeat at Mohash, where the cream of Hungarian chivalry was mown down by Turkish cannon. Hungary was then divided into three, a part annexed by the Ottomans, a part ruled by a Christian puppet king, and a part retained by the Habsburgs. The independence of Hungary was extinguished and it would become a battlefield between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs from here on in. So, it was generally, as I say, disappointing news from a Hungarian viewpoint. Suleiman was not happy that the Habsburgs had resisted his advance and had retained some of Hungary. So, he had a think, and he decided that another movement was in order, and reducing the Habsburgs and all their lands would be the next satisfactory outcome. Tiresomely, he was delayed by three more years with internal revolt. Come on, seriously, not another one, but within a minute... In 1529 then, 1529, the Ottoman behemoth of at least 120,000 men rolled forward over the defences of the Habsburg Empire at Buda and east to Vienna. It was an army of unimaginable strength from a Christian perspective. Now it's probably true to say that there were a very large number of lightly armed soldiers, the Ottoman equivalent of those Star Trek characters with the red shirts in the original series, the one you knew had appeared in the show, to die cannon fodder. And historians sit in earnest groups and discuss Suleiman's motives and concluded that he probably only meant to remove that remaining one-third of Hungary the Habsburgs had held on to, and have also concluded that maybe Vienna was as far inside Europe as the Ottomans could manage logistically at the time. But you know, at the time, the citizens of Christendom were understandably concerned that an unbeatable scourge was about to remove their liberty, religion and, you know, life, and all that stood between them and that future were the walls of Vienna, the Habsburg capital in Central Europe. And Vienna had nothing like the defences that Rhodes had possessed, and look what had happened to that. Cry havoc, woe is me, Lord protect us. And so for two months, the Ottoman tide washed up against the walls of Vienna. But this time, it was not to be. It rained a lot, I mean, it rained a lot. Suleiman therefore did what warlords do. He magnificently and grandly declared victory and withdrew, devastating as he went. The war resumed, but a truce declared in 1533, and round one was over. 
But defence against the Turk was now a core part of the Charles V and Habsburg job description. Interestingly, I think I have noted that Francis I, desperate to win his wars against the Habsburgs, would conclude an alliance with Suleiman that shocked Christian Europe. Franco-Ottoman alliances would have a long history, and while rarely crowned with the greatest of success, would include joint operations. The Ottomans are now a permanent part of the diplomatic circus of Europe. The struggle between Ottoman and Habsburg was a sea war as well. The capture of the pirate city of Tunis in 1533 led to an increase in piratical activity that drew Venice into the war against the Ottomans from 1537. And into the story comes one of the great figures of European naval history, Barbarossa the pirate and Ottoman admiral, and the Genoese admiral Andrea Doria. Siege and counter-siege, victory and defeat on both times, Corfu held by the Christians, shattering defeat at Levkas. The Venetians structured their finances for a long-term war of attrition. It has been noted that the strength of the resistance to Ottoman advance in the Mediterranean allowed European kingdoms the freedom to explore and expand into the Atlantic. A different slant on the story, that the rise of the Atlantic trade caused the decline of the Med. Nonetheless, the Ottomans now controlled the eastern Mediterranean, Islamic corsairs in the Mediterranean were a constant threat to trade, and they launched raids on Gibraltar, Cadiz, Malaga. One assault on Naples in 1544 by the Ottoman Corsairs resulted in the capture of 7,000 people. They even conducted raids on England. This is a bit later, but you might be interested to know that in nine years in the early 17th century, so in James I's reign, Corsairs seized 466 English vessels in nine years. 466. That's a lot. And in 1617, a Corsair ship appeared in the Thames. Wherever they raided, they came for slaves. A reasonable guess is the average number of slaves held on the North African coast at any one time would have been around 35,000 people. Over the early modern period, the same historian Benjamin Kaplan estimates that about a million or more Christians were enslaved by Muslim raiders. All of this, religion, cultural difference, military threat, slavery, meant that the Turk and the Moor were not neutral figures in the West. God scourges how Luther and other preachers referred to them. There was a fascination with travel books about the region. Some of those were written by ex-slaves and they brought back lurid tales which fed a reputation for Ottoman cruelty. And so, in 1556, when the new king of Spain, Philip II, faced an assault on the Spanish-held city of Iran on the North African coast, it felt that Christendom faced a full-scale Islamic invasion. Despite severe financial difficulties, Philip scraped together a fleet, and with a high sense of purpose and mission, the fleet set off to save Christendom. Its ultimate and crushing defeat at Gerba, near Tunis, was a devastating blow for Spanish prestige and manpower. And not only was the fear of the Turk raised still further, but Malta, the new home of the Order of St John, was now vulnerable to Ottoman attack. And if Malta fell, the whole of the Western Mediterranean could surely not be long after, and all was Christian chaos and despair. And sure enough, into this miasma of fear and loathing in El Escorial sailed, in 1565, a massive assault on the last defence of the Mediterranean. The tiny island of Malta watched, as a massive fleet of 193 ships bore down on them from over the horizon, carrying 40,000 Ottoman troops who had but one thought, to destroy them. Facing them, knees knocking gently together in the wind, were but two and a half thousand Knights of St John, 
under the command of Jean de la Vallette. Now, sadly, I do not have the space to talk about this iconic event in European history in the detail I would like. Suffice it to say, from May to September, the Ottoman army seemed sure to capture the island, and yet La Valette would not yield, would not yield. The people of Malta showed that same determination they would from 1940 to 42, and eventually the arrival of a Christian relief force broke the siege. Suleiman in Istanbul was furious, and he ruefully declared that if he'd been commanding the armies, they would have won, and promptly died shortly afterwards, which seems like an appropriate response, to be fair. There are many historical novels, by the way, set during the siege, and I might recommend The Religion by Tim Wilcock and The Sword and the Scimitar by Simon Scarrow if you're looking for a companion on your lilo. With Suleiman gone in 1566, one of the Ottoman Empire's most talented rulers was no more, and the traditional rubric has been of a relentless decline from that golden age as Islamic writers used his triumphs to denigrate later rulers. And it is true to say that some of Suleiman's immediate successors were not brilliant. His surviving son was not an impressive man and was to be known as Selim the Sot. There is a reason for this, and it is to do with his mum. Now, there is absolutely no need to talk about Roxolana, and yet that is exactly what I'm going to do, just very, very quickly, forgive me. Roxolana, or Horem Sultan, as she might be more properly known, was probably from the Ukraine, a slave captured in some Ottoman raid and brought to Istanbul. Suleiman had four chief concubines and about 300 other concubines in his harem, and his heirs were likely to be chosen from the four chief concubines. On the death of the Sultan, the winning heir would normally kill off all the other brothers, which did a good job of straightening out any unfortunate kinks in the succession. Roxolana started at the bottom of the hierarchy, but her personality and talent brought her quickly to the top. Horem means laughing one. She was born with the gift of laughter and quite possibly a sense that the world was mad, a rather lovely quote, incidentally, from what could be my father's favourite romantic novel. Answers about its title on a postcard, but as a clue, I think its name appears in the Bohemian Rhapsody. Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. By the time of Suleiman's accession to the Sultanate, Roxolana was at his side, and she was to yield quite extraordinary amounts of influence over the Sultan. Now, a word of warning here, this is a very closed and secretive world. Much of what we think we know is based on gossip and hearsay. But one core fact attests to Roxolana's unique position. Suleiman married her. This was exceptional. The Sultans very rarely did this. To get to that point, tradition has it that she had the Grand Vizier who opposed such a move assassinated. She was a player. Suleiman clearly had it bad, as we know from a love poem under his pen name which has survived. Suleiman was a real Renaissance prince. Here's a snippet. Throne of my lovely niche, my wealth, my love, my moonlight, my most sincere friend, my confidant, my very existence, my sultan, my one and only love, the most beautiful among the beautiful. Well, by heck, that would have made my grandmother's chin wobble. I can't go on much longer. Suffice to say that the gossip part has it that Roxolana and another chief concubine, Marie Devran, slugged it out in a long, drawn-out political battle to have their own son succeed. And unfortunately, Roxolana won. Unfortunately, because her competitor's son, Mustafa, was a fine leader, while Roxolana's son, Selim, was a stinker. Roxolana died in 1558, by the way, well before Suleiman. Anyway, there's the digression over. So, 
I was saying that with the accession of Selim the Sot, the traditional rubric has been one of a long and inevitable decline to the much sought-after title of Sick Man of Europe. However, that traditional story has recently been summarily rejected to one of change rather than one of decline, and the understanding that the superb Ottoman bureaucracy and the office of vizier meant that the government remained strong and largely stable, whatever the epithet of their ruler. And we will have a couple of mads, a fortunate and a martyr in there over the next few years. So that was a good thing. The Ottoman Empire therefore remained a constant threat to Europe. And indeed, if evidence were needed, in 1570, the Grand Vizier launched a fleet of 116 ships and an army of 50,000 men at Cyprus, still held by the Venetians. By July 1570, Nicosia had been captured and viciously sacked. All the males that could be found were killed and the women and children taken as slaves. The Ottomans moved on to Famagusta, with the head of the commander of Nicosia thoughtfully carried with them in a basket. After all, you never know when a Nicosian head might come in handy. By August, Famagusta's garrison had agreed terms, but as they marched and left, the Ottomans fell on them and slaughtered all the 2,000 troops, flaying the commander alive in the town square and sending his skin stuffed with straw back to Istanbul. Sweet. Cyprus had fallen to the Turk. However, the relief force being prepared with the energetic support of Pope Pius V and Don John of Austria, they weren't aware that that had happened. And they had assembled an enormous fleet of 208 galleys in a superhuman effort, manned by 30,000 soldiers. In October... Don John heard of the defeat at Cyprus, but despite this, despite the lateness in the year and despite the fact that he faced 270 Ottoman ships to his 208, Don John was determined to hunt down the Ottoman fleet, guarding Cyprus against this relief force. The result was a crushing Ottoman defeat at what is known to history as the Battle of Lepanto. Maybe as many as 30,000 Ottoman troops died and 240 of their fleet were sunk or captured. 12,000 Christian slaves were freed. Cervantes, the Don Quixote guy, himself fought at Lepanto, and he described the wound he sustained there as a wound which, although it appears ugly, he holds for lovely, because he received it on the most memorable and lofty occasion that past centuries have beheld, nor do those to come hope to see the like. The immediate consequences of Lepanto were a bit paltry, actually. Cyprus remained Ottoman, for example, but it acquired, probably rightfully, the reputation as one of the most decisive battles in European history. Because although Ottoman naval power in the eastern Mediterranean and North Africa was not wiped out, the threat to the western Mediterranean receded, and never again would the Ottomans dare a face-to-face naval battle. Together, Malta and Lepanto set the boundary to the seemingly inexorable rise of Ottoman power. So, on land and sea, the Ottoman threat appeared to recede for a while, though in the 17th century, they will be back. It's easy to downplay the threat they pose to Europe. Historians have pointed out that the Timurot system, for example, was poorly designed for a long campaign. The Sipahis could probably stay in the field no more than 100 days and were useless for providing garrisons. And actually, the Ottomans found siege warfare very difficult. They were frequently held up for long periods by determined garrisons. But the 16th century had seen the emergence of an empire that assumed that continuous war meant continuous conquest. 
In 1595, they would win a major victory in Hungary at Kastiven. The early modern European had no idea, of course, what the future would hold. The Ottomans remained large in European minds as a real and present danger, or at least in the minds of the Habsburgs. While further away from the threat, both France and Elizabeth I tended to see them as a possible ally. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so we have one more task for today's episode then, which is to chart the fortunes of France in the second half of the 16th century. And it started well, in a sense. In 1559, the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrécy finally drew to an end the ruinous Valois-Habsburg Wars, and not before time. For France, they'd been appallingly expensive in both money and men, and brought them nothing more than the use of the comfy chair on a Wednesday. The French king that signed the treaty with Philip II of Spain was called Henry II, and he was the son of Francis I. He was 40 years old, and he was a chip off the old block in the sense that he had a passionate relationship with his mistress, Diane de Poitiers, who exercised real influence over the affairs of state through her squeeze, the king. And the pair of them kept the queen, Catherine de' Medici, well away from any influence. Ambassadors reported home that Henry would sit on Diane's lap and play the guitar while the ambassador met them. He might even casually fondle Diane's breasts as they discussed matters of international diplomacy, disqualified as non-standard behaviour, diplomacy-wise. Henry II was also a chip off the old block in another way. He was a fierce opponent of the growing tide of Calvinism in his country. At his side was Francis, Duke of Guise, head of a powerful and very important Catholic family in the chaos that follows. The Duke of Guise had a sister called Mary of Guise. She happened to be Queen of and Regent of Scotland. So, you know, look at those connections a Medici Queen in France, a Guise at the right hand of the King, a Guise as Queen of France. Henry II's heir was another Francis, and he was married to Mary of Guise's daughter and underage monarch of Scotland, the one and only Mary, Queen of Scots. All those connections between France and Scotland and Catholicism are important. They are particularly important because Mary of Guise in Scotland also faced a severe challenge from the rise of Calvinism. In 1555, John Knox had returned to Scotland and helped the development of secret churches. He toured around Scotland preaching and he began to win real support from Scottish nobles. In 1559 this came to a head with waves of protest and preaching against the Catholic Church and Mary of Guise and her regency was declared suspended. Mary of course fought back, she raised an army with French help and she advanced on the rebels. Until in 1560 the English came to John Knox's aid. By the end of 1560 Mary of Guise was dead. And although Mary, Queen of Scots, and her husband, Francis II of France, were accepted as monarchs of Scotland, the Reformation in Scotland had won. And the process of converting the whole nation to Calvinism in the teeth of royal Catholic opposition was well advanced. I mention this not only for its own sake, but to make the point that through the 1550s, the Guise would have been reflecting to their king the threat that Calvinism posed to French Catholicism. 
Henry II responded with increasing desperation. The Edict of Chateaubriand in 1551 lamented the failure to prevent heresy and included severe penalties for Protestants. It was followed by the Edict of Compiègne in 1557, imposing the death penalty for all heretics, swiftly enforced when three Calvinists were burned in the very same month. So, part of the motivation for Henry II in agreeing the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrésis with Philip may well have been to free his hands to concentrate on this new scourge. And the threat was real, and it was present. By 1560, there may well have been 1.8 million Calvinists in France, out of a total population of 17 million. That, and you'll probably be able to do this in your head, is over 10% of the population. To use a technical term, a lot. The treaty with Philip II included a commitment by both monarchs to eliminate heresy, an objective to which Philip II in particular would dedicate a significant proportion of his life. More prettily, the treaty was accompanied by the inevitable celebrations and a tournament, and Henry II took to the lists, wearing his mistress's colours rather than his wife's, you know, as you do. His opponent was one Gabriel Montgomery, who happened to be the head of the King's Scottish Guard. It is a shame that in the 16th century nobody recognised the value of job descriptions since if Gabriel had agreed a detailed set of roles, responsibilities and objectives it's highly likely that he would have not have stuck his lance into the king's eye. Well, I exaggerate for effect. It was a splinter, but the king was incapacitated. As he lay ill, he frequently asked for his paramour, Diane de Poitiers, to be told, don't worry, dear heart, Catherine, your wife's here now. After a bit of judicious festering, it was enough. Henry II was dead and his successor, a feeble minor, Francis II. Francis, the feeble minor, was dead by July 1560, and his 18-year-old spouse, Mary Queen of Scots, was on her way back home to Scotland. Diane de Poitiers was sent packing to boot, although actually Diane died in comfortable obscurity, and it seems possible she died from drinking too much gold, which apparently is poisonous. I did not know that. I must remember to stop drinking all that gold I have lying around the shed. Anyway, I digress. The new King of France was Charles IX, ten years old, and enthralled to his mum, Catherine de Medici, who would no longer be pushed into anybody's background, thank you very much. That very year, a Protestant faction tried to assassinate the all-powerful and staunchly Catholic Duke of Guise. From this moment on, French Protestants began to be known as Huguenot. I would try and tell you why they were known as Huguenots, but to be honest, it's a shed cast all of its own. And with the various theories and counter theories, if I start now, we could all die here. Trust me, I'm a podcaster. But what I can tell you is that France stood on the edge looking into the abyss. The abyss winked back playfully and gave a little roguish, impish grin. By now, the Huguenots were running a synod that drew delegates from 2,150 churches. So, you know, sticking to the mathematical theme, a lot. I must, of course, not get dragged into a too detailed description of the French wars of religion that follow, so let me just give a series of highlights, or maybe major events would be a better expression. French politics now oscillated between extreme factionalism to open civil war. In the middle of this, Queen Catherine de' Medici fought tooth and nail to maintain some sort of control for the lacerated Valois monarchy and maintain a smidgen of its authority and prestige. She started, in fact, with the Edict of Saint-Germain, offering some sort of toleration. However, at the village of Vassy that year, Francis, Duke of Guise, rode into town for the night 
and to his horror and outrage, Sacred Blue discovered Huguenots practising their religion in a barn. Yuck! Edict of Saint-Germain? What Edict of Saint-Germain? muttered Guise, as 63 Huguenots were burned to death, trapped in a church. This was the starting gun for the French Wars of Religion, capital F, capital W, capital R, on my rules of grammar which state that capitals should be used wherever they look good. A leader of the Huguenot cause emerged, the House of Bourbon, initially in the guise, ha, if you'll pardon the pun, of the Prince de Condé. Both factions, Guise and Bourbon, Catholic and Huguenot, would frequently declare the old mantra that they needed to rescue the king and his mum because they'd been captured by evil councillors. Evil being defined as, you know, the other side. Condé's campaign cannot be said to have got off to a flyer. At the Battle of Dreux in 1563, he was captured and the Huguenot defeated. These are big battles, by the way. Dreux may have involved as many as 30,000 men and seen 9,000 casualties. This is chaos with a capital C. But in 1563, the Duke of Guise was assassinated and a Huguenot leader, Admiral Coligny, was implicated in his death. Although there was no evidence, just like the Wars of the Roses in Blighty, we now have another toxic element in the war, a blood feud between the houses of Guise and Coligny. The new Duke of Guise, Henry, swore to be avenged. And in 1569, at the Battle of Yarnac, the Huguenots were again defeated. Condé was killed, and now Coligny became leader of the Huguenots, and at his side was a young Henry of Navarre, the eldest Bourbon. At this point, Queen Catherine and King Charles managed to finally broker a peace between the two sides. The Huguenots were allowed four fortified towns, Coligny was readmitted to the King's Council, and it was agreed that Margaret of France, the King's sister, and Henry of Navarre would get married, bringing the two sides together in peace, harmony, love and indeed kisses, and all sides could go together to prepare for the glorious wedding in the finest Parisian nail studios. Of course, the Catholics were steaming at even these limited concessions. The Pope, Philip II of Spain, were equally bilious and condemned the arrangements too. Toleration, psaw, I fart in the general direction of your toleration. Another massacre did then occur at Rouen, but generally actually an uneasy peace held before the wedding. That's uneasy with a capital W, which is weird. Henry of Navarre would write... The court is the strangest I have known. We are nearly always ready to cut each other's throat. So, it's August 1572, everyone. August 1572. There are now two million Huguenots in France and all their leaders were gathered in Paris for the wedding of the century. A wedding that made Kate and Wills look like a quick trip to the town hall back in time fish and chips, curry sauce and a night in with the footer. The atmosphere, of course, is super, super tense. Tensy McTen's face, in fact. Paris was the least persuaded of all French cities about the new religion, really very Catholic. Everyone was nervous, no one could relax. But hurrah! The wedding went off without a hitch. And according to both parties, the wedding night was something of a success too. Ha <laughs> But a few days later, on the 22nd of August... There was an assassination attempt on Admiral Coligny, the Huguenot leader, that very nearly succeeded. That was close. On the night of the 23rd of August, Paris settled down for the night. 
It might have been noticed by some of the more eagle-eyed that the city gates were locked by the Swiss guard, which was a bit odd. But then, if asked, the guard would have said it was because of the tension, which to keep control, keep the peace, protect the fair citizens of Paris from the barbarians outside the gate. And so, look, maybe it was all for the best. In the dead of night, when all was quiet, the bells of the Church of Saint-Germain, L'Auxerrois, split the silence. In the castle of the Louvre, the finest Protestant nobility were dragged from their beds by the king's Swiss guard and pulled outside the Louvre gates. As they stood in various states of undress, they were butchered to a man. As Coligny lay wounded in his bed, the Duke of Guise himself burst through the gates with his men and after a stiff fight against the Protestant nobles at Coligny's side, killed the imperturbable Coligny and threw his body into the street. As Huguenots tried to escape, they came up against the locked gates. They are coming. We cannot get out. The Parisians began to wake up and slowly came to understand what was happening. Defenceless Protestants were being butchered. How awful. Actually, can I have one? Paris went wild in an orgy of destruction and death. For three days, gangs hunted the streets of Paris for Huguenots to kill. Henry of Navarre was one of the only leaders to survive, and he saved himself only by promising to convert to Catholicism, a promise he went back on as soon as he was out of Paris, the little tinker. As corpses floated down the River Seine, Catholics all over France decided this was a collaborative exercise and they would like to take part too. How many died is not clear, but probably around 3,000 in Paris and 10,000 all told. To use a technical mathematical term, quite a lot. What had happened? Responsibility for the massacre of St Bartholomew's Eve, as it became known, lies at the door of Catherine de' Medici and Charles IX. Now, it is extremely unlikely they ever foresaw the full extent of the death toll. It seems to be likely that Catherine persuaded Charles that the factionism was killing their authority and must be dealt with for the good of all. And the plan was to take out 24 of the Protestant leaders. So, much more limited then. By doing so, of course, the French monarch, the upholder and embodiment of the law, had decided to drag the concept of the rule of law through the streets of Paris. But, you know, both had a point that the factionism was causing untold chaos and must be stopped. As far as the Huguenots were concerned, they might continue to owe allegiance to the office of king, but their allegiance to the current incumbent was no more. The result of the massacre was not the defeat of the Huguenot cause, but simply defined the battle lines a little harder and made the fight ever more vicious. The death of Charles IX in 1573 was followed by the accession of King Henry III, who has the distinction of being the last Valois king of France. And after you've had a king like Henry III, changing the dynasty was a pretty good decision. All the authority of the French monarchy evaporated in the heat of Henry's corrupt and dissolute court, even among Catholics. Both sides, Catholic and Huguenot, armed and fought each other. In 1584, the last of Henry III's heirs died, and Henry of Navarre, spookily, leader of the Huguenot, became heir to the French throne. The Guise had, meanwhile, in 1576, formed something called the Catholic League, and they were predictably in a frenzy. By 1588, they had effectively gained control of King Henry III and Catherine de Medici, and they dominated and controlled them so they could use the resources of the state to try and rub the Huguenot out of existence before one of them became, you know, their king. But Henry III was not quite finished. 
Whatever he thought of the Protestant threat, his soul burned at his political humiliation at the hands of the Guise. So, the Duke of Guise and his leaders were lured into a trap and assassinated. Within a year, though, Henry himself had been assassinated by a fanatical Dominican friar. Henry of Navarre was now technically King of France. Bit of a turn-up for the books, for the Huguenot. He would be the first of the Bourbon dynasty that would meet its Waterloo in 1789, if I may briefly mix my metaphors. He would be known as Henry the Great, or Henry the Green Gallant, for all the mistresses he acquired. But first, he would have to fight for his kingdom. And between 1589 and 1593, that's exactly what he did. Militarily, Henry was successful, even when the Spanish, under the Duke of Parma, invaded to support the Catholic League. But Henry could not take Paris. And so, in 1594, in an awe-inspiring act of treachery, Henry converted to Catholicism. Paris, he declared, was well worth a mass. There can be few acts of treachery that have saved so many lives. Even with two million Huguenots, France was overwhelmingly Catholic and would not follow a Protestant leader. Henry was still not in charge of his kingdom, though. The Catholic League really did not believe him. They solemnly considered him to be a bit of a kidder. So, Henry did another clever thing. He declared war on Spain. Clever, I hear you ask? Declaring war on Europe's most powerful nation? Well, look, Spain was, of course, leaders of Catholic Europe. It gave French Catholics something of an agonising decision, a test of where their loyalties lay. His Catholic League opponents failed that test and sided with Spain. Henry was therefore able to unite loyal Catholics and Huguenots around him against a common enemy and demonstrate that Spain was using religion to destabilise their French opponent. At last, Henry IV, as Henry of Navarre had of course become, was able to crush opposition to his rule. The penultimate scene in this particular act of the play was the 1598 Edict of Nantes. The Edict declared that Catholicism was the only official state religion. Huguenots were discriminated against, but they were able to coexist and practice their religion. They were allowed to fortify their towns to protect themselves. This is again not toleration, it's separation, but at last it brought peace. It's impossible, surely, to know how many people died in the French wars of religion, but for what it's worth, one historian, Robert Necht, estimated between two and four million. A lot, essentially. And I mean a lot. About 1.6 million Huguenots remained in France. The Pope, of course, protested in vain against the arrangement, but in France there was no strength left to resume these wars. Or not yet, anyway. Watch this space. The final act in this drama came in 1610. Henry was the target of many assassination attempts, actually at least 12. In 1593, a fanatical Catholic was caught, broken on the wheel and dismembered. In 1594, a Jesuit-trained cloth merchant's son came very close, hitting out and cutting the king's lip. As the law prescribed, the assassin's hand, with which he had struck the king, was burned with molten sulphur, lead and wax. And then he was dismembered. Sorry, I appear to be taking an unseemly interest in the gory bits. Hang on just a moment. Finally, in 1610, Henry's queen since 1600, Marie de' Medici, was to have a coronation ceremony. They do get around these Medici, do they not? It was understandably a little bit busy and there was a lot of traffic and Henry's coach was stopped by traffic congestion. As he waited, 
another Catholic fanatic burst into the coach and stabbed his king to death. The assassin was to be dismembered again for his crime, though here's a quote about the torture which led up to the four horses bit. He was scalded with burning sulphur, molten lead and boiling oil and resin, his flesh then being torn by pincers. Have I given sufficient gory detail now? So that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of the 16th century for France and the Ottomans, which leaves us with Spain, the Dutch, the developing global trade, colonialism and exploration and all that, which we will come to in two weeks' time, since I'm exhausted from all the red-hot pincers and all that sort of thing. So we will meet each other again for the Spanish century on the 2nd of September. Thank you all for listening, for your reviews, for your comments on iTunes, Facebook, the website, all that. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.